You're listening to Comedy Central. November 6, 2019. From Comedy Central's World News Headquarters in New York, this is The Daily Show with Trevor Noah, Ears Edition. Tonight is a Democratic presidential candidate from the great state of Texas. Julian Castro is joining us, everybody. Also on tonight's show, why billionaires are having nightmares, why Nazis aren't jerking it, and Kentucky slaps Donald Trump in the face. So let's catch up on today's headlines. Let's kick it off with election day. It's the one day of the year when it's not creepy to hang out in an elementary school. <laughs> and yesterday, we saw that Democrats are still riding their blue wave. Democrats claiming victory in two key races they say are precursors of what's to come. In Virginia, the former red state turning blue. Democrats securing control of all levels of power for the first time in a generation. In Kentucky, Democrat Andy Bashir claiming victory over incumbent governor Matt Bevin. The president made the Kentucky race a referendum about himself. If you lose, they're gonna say Trump suffered the greatest defeat in the history of the world. This was the greatest. You can't let that happen to me. <laughs> Yo, man, say what you want about Trump, but he's priceless. He's supposed to be campaigning for the governor of Kentucky, but he makes the whole election about himself. Don't let it happen to me, guys. It's like, what about me? Shut up, it's about me. He's the kind of person who would show up at your deathbed like, please don't die. You said you'd give me a ride to the airport, please. <laughs> I don't want to get a taxi. <laughs> but yes, last night was a good night for the Democrats. They won the governor's race in Kentucky, and they managed to change the Virginia State House from red to blue. Yeah, it was a big night for them. This is big. From red to blue. And remember, this is in a place where the governor's face went from white to black. <laughs> oh, and remember, Remember that Virginia woman? Do you remember that Virginia woman who got fired for flipping off Trump's motorcade a couple years ago? Yeah, well, she ran. She ran for office and she won her election. Yeah. That finger launched her political career. I'm not gonna lie, if I was her, I would have my finger up the entire time I'm in office now. I'd be like, the people voted for it. I'd get sworn in like I do, solemnly swear. All right, but let's move on to some celebrity news that involves Emma Watson, or as I call her, Hermione pretending to be a regular person. <laughs> anyway, Emma Watson is known for her social justice work as much as her acting, but her newest cause has taken some people by surprise. The Washington Post reports actress Emma Watson has coined a new term for being single, self-partnered. Watson says that she prefers to use that term rather than single as she approaches her 30th birthday. It took me a long time, but I'm very... Happy, I call it being self-partnered. The term resonating with so many, self-partnered, trending on social media, one fan writing, I like this self-partnered concept. Oh shit, new term alert. Wee, wee. Although I guess because she's British, it's more like wee, woo, wee, woo, wee. <laughs> But I like this idea, and I think it's especially useful for Emma Watson, 
Yeah, because when creepy dudes are hitting on her like, hey, I hear you're single, she can be like, no, I'm actually dating someone who's better looking and richer than you. Plot twist, it's me. Expelliarmus, <laughs> douchebag. <laughs> Although, <laughs> people should realize, self-partnered is gonna be a type of relationship, right? Which means you're still gonna get jealous sometimes even if you're dating yourself. You'll be sneaking a look at your own phone like, hey, who is me, huh? <laughs> and then finding your own stuff around the apartment. Whose underwear is this, mine? <laughs> believe I'd do this to me. But what I like about the term self-partnered is that it, it removes the stigma of being single. Yeah. Because the word single makes you seem like a loser. You know, I'm single. Yeah, but self-partnered makes it sound like a choice. I like that. Yeah. I think we should find better names for other things in life. Like, I'm not a thief. I'm an expert in borrowing. It sounds cool. <laughs> Has a nice ring to it. All right, moving on to some science news. If you know someone who thinks that they're the center of the universe, first of all, congratulations on working in the White House. And second, <laughs> it turns out that's not possible. Scientific America reports a new study suggests the universe might actually be a giant loop. The study was published in the journal Nature. It says instead of being flat, the universe may be curved like a massive inflated balloon. The scientists say if someone were to travel outside our galaxy into deep space, they'd loop around and end up back where they started. Wow. This is something I don't really understand. <laughs> Like, what, what, what does that mean? The universe loops back around, like, like a Pac-Man board? Is that, so if you leave the one side and then you come back on the other side, you, you get the fruits? Is that, that how that works? Because I love how the news reports are like, we should all know what that means, you know? Like, the reporters are just like, previously, we thought the universe was flat. We did? <laughs> I, I didn't think that, did you? Did you think the universe? I've never thought about the shape of the universe. Okay, once I did, but I didn't know the edibles were gonna kick in that hard. I mean, <laughs> that was like the only time. But for real, though, this is fascinating, but it'll never affect me. It's like that time we found out that a T-Rex sounded like a duck. I mean, I'm glad I know, but I can't do shit with that information. Because <laughs> who's leaving the universe? People don't even go to Queens. I mean... <laughs> but if I understand, if I understand the study right, scientists are basically saying that the universe is a closed circle, right? It's a loop. So if you go down one side of the universe, you come back on the other side. So, like, if you travel far enough, eventually, you'll find yourself. Oh my God, Emma Watson figured it out, guys. It's self-partnering. <laughs> All right, that's it for the headlines. Let's move on to our top story. <laughs> now that election day 2019 is officially over, the next big voting day on everyone's calendar is November 3rd, 2020. It's the day Donald Trump will face off against the Democratic nominee or his parole board. Nobody knows, nobody knows. <laughs> But before that day, the Democrats need to decide who their champion is gonna be. So let's catch up on the latest in the Democratic race in our ongoing segment, World War D. <laughs> As the Democratic field gears up for the first big votes in Iowa and New Hampshire, everyone's focus has turned to Elizabeth Warren, Massachusetts senator and aunt who writes, I love you under all your Facebook pictures. <laughs> Over the past few weeks, Warren has shot to the top of the polls thanks to her support among college graduates, Hispanic voters, and kids who ate lunch with their English teachers in middle school. <laughs> but there is one demographic who hears Elizabeth Warren and immediately shits their Armani suits. Newly minted Democratic frontrunner Elizabeth Warren, she has got Wall Street on edge 
Some would say in a full-blown panic. Headline after headline with ominous warnings about dropping markets, investors running scared from the prospect of Elizabeth Warren being our next president. Some Democratic donors on Wall Street are reportedly threatening to vote for President Trump or sit out of the 2020 election cycle if the party nominates Elizabeth Warren. I think Wall Street, and especially the banks, have every right to be extremely concerned about a Warren presidency. Look, I've got to tell you, when you get off the desk and you talk to executives, they're more fearful of her winning. I mean, I've never heard anybody say, look, I, uh, she's got to be stopped. Yes, Wall Street bankers are more terrified of Elizabeth Warren than they are of a surprise gust of wind. Oh no, my cocaine! Wah! Deep breath, deep breath, deep breath. <laughs> and it's, it's not surprising. It's not surprising that the people of Wall Street are afraid because Elizabeth Warren has proposed some of the most progressive financial policies in years. Things like breaking up the big banks, increasing taxes on the ultra-wealthy, and, and, yeah, and making it easier for normal people to join the Illuminati. That's like a big thing, yeah. Some dude's just gonna come in like, sorry to interrupt the orgy, but what's the Wi-Fi, guys? My aunt's gonna love these pictures. Now, it's kind of hard to take the Wall Street crowd seriously. And not just because they still think Bluetooth is cool, but also because this isn't the first time they've predicted the end of the world. Everything that Obama is promising is destructive to our economy and, and detrimental to the stock market. I think the national economy's in for a bad thing if he wins. If it's Obama, Larry, I'm, I'm scared for this economy. I'm scared for this country. Numerous economists and business leaders, they are thinking the economy and the stock market will tank if Trump wins in November. If Trump wins, you will see a market crash of historic proportions. Yes, for both Trump and Obama, analysts claimed that the stock market would tank. But do you know what actually happened? The exact opposite. It's been going up for 10 years. Because you see, in many ways, the stock market is a lot like a penis, right? There are many situations where you swear it's gonna be down, but surprise, surprise, it just keeps rising and nobody knows why. You're like, dude, seriously? At grandma's funeral? I'm not controlling it. I don't understand why it's just happening. So the 1% are clearly not excited at the prospect of Elizabeth Warren winning the White House. But according to these billionaires, they aren't just anti-Warren because she's threatening their wallets, no. They don't like her because she's also hurting their feelings. The battle of the billionaires continues after Leon Cooperman was brought to tears yesterday on CNBC. Cooperman was and has been very critical of Elizabeth Warren's proposed wealth tax. I don't need Elizabeth Warren telling me that I'm a deadbeat and that billionaires are deadbeats. The vilification of billionaires makes no sense to me. People can not only see the emotion on your face, but hear it in your voice when you talk about this, Lee, why? I care. That's it. Wait, are you crying? You're a billionaire who's crying because Elizabeth Warren is criticizing billionaires? W would you like a tissue? Get the f out of here, man! Are you serious right now? something. The only time you should be crying as a billionaire is when a ghost teaches you the meaning of Christmas. That's the only time. <laughs> and I'm, I'm disappointed in this. I'm not gonna lie. Because of all the things 
that ever made me want to become a billionaire. This is not why like, I wanted to become a billionaire because I thought the whole point of becoming a billionaire is that you never have to give a shit about money ever again. But these guys over here are like, how will I afford to throw a birthday party for my yacht? <laughs> we'll be right back. right. Every day, these men seem to be getting angrier and angrier. The question is, why? Well, we sent Michael Costa to try and find out. Meet the alt-right. White lives matter! White lives matter! A loosely connected group of right-wing white nationalists, known for chanting confusing conspiracy theories like... All while dressed like kids whose divorced dads made their Halloween costumes. And these World War II reenactment rejects have one other thing in common. They are angry. But what do they have to be so angry about? I'm a white guy, things are great. Cops don't pull me over, I pull them over to ask for a bottle opener. Thanks, officer. No, you have a great day. There's no logical reason why the alt-right should be so angry. They're kind of winning. But what if there was a deeper reason for their frustration? Across the alt-right movement, leaders are telling young men not to masturbate. It wait, 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 wait. <laughs> what? Clinical psychologist Dr. David Lay <laughs> has a theory about why these young men are so angry. They're not strangling their pepes. They know how to masturbate. They're not going side to side, right? They know it's up and down. I don't think this is a technique issue. They are actually trying not to masturbate. You should take me hours. <laughs> now it's like, yeah, you know what right. I mean? Well, I have one hand, so, right. you know, it, it, it gets lots of practice. This guy masturbates. Dr. Lay <laughs> explained that the main proponents of this no-wank philosophy were the Proud Boys. Masturbation is lack of impulse control. The Proud Boys believe that not masturbating increases their testosterone and makes them more desirable to women, which brings up one question. Is it working for the Proud Boys? Research actually finds that less masturbation reduces testosterone. So there's evidence that masturbating makes you a more masculine man. A lot of really good things happen in your body and your brain, but also research is finding that people who watch more pornography, they are more feminist, and interestingly, they develop more egalitarian values over time. You're right. I watch a lot of gangbangs, and one day I thought, oh my God, women have it so hard. This isn't fair. 95 guys and one girl? We need some better representation here. And the Proud Boys are just the tip. There are stroke shamers all over the alt-right. So Canadian psychologist Dr. Jordan Peterson, he's leader in the alt-right movement in Canada, and he tells young men there's nothing noble about masturbating to pornography. That's terrible. I mean, what else are they going to do up there in between periods of hockey? That's noble, that's exactly, healthy. Exactly, that's healthy. David Duke, who is a former grand wizard of the KKK, he believes that pornography is a Jewish conspiracy to get young white men to masturbate instead of procreating, and so the white race dies out. What is it about the Jews with these guys? And speaking of which, this far-right moratorium on salami wrestling has been going on longer than you think. The Nazis taught young men not to masturbate, 
Nazis. Nazis used sexual suppression as a way to increase malleability in people. If we can get people to give up masturbation, we can get them to do anything. First they came for our flashlights, and I said nothing. So it's not just the insidious beliefs, mob violence, and haircuts. The alt-right jacked this off the Nazis too? They're teaching these kids to hate themselves, to be ashamed of themselves, and then they can exploit them. Wow. They go down this rabbit hole of these extreme dangerous beliefs and become radicalized. So what you're saying is masturbation can save lives. Definitely. You know what? Let's do it right now. Let's show them all. Let's go. I love talking to you, man. Come on. Take out your dick. We can't show you the rest of that interview, but I will say, when I think about these young people being manipulated into joining hate groups, it makes me very angry and, and, and frustrated and, uh, <clears throat> excuse me for one second. <clears throat> anyway, if you or anyone you know seems to be getting drawn into the alt-right before buying that tiki torch, Try lighting the one inside your khakis first. I'm Michael Costa telling all you young angry men to stop hating and start baiting. Michael Costa, everyone, we'll be right back. <laughs> My guest tonight is a 2020 presidential candidate who served as President Obama's Secretary of Housing and Urban Development, as well as Mayor of San Antonio. Please welcome Julian Castro. <laughs> welcome back to the show. Good to be back. Oh, you got some love in the audience. There you go. Um, so here you are. On the campaign trail, before we get into it, I just want to say this up front. Beto O'Rourke was just on the show. Said to my face that he was not gonna drop out of the race. Then he dropped out four days later. <laughs> and I was like, he lied to my face. Beto was like, I'm not going anywhere. And then four days later, he's like, yeah, I'm going somewhere. I'm going somewhere. <laughs> Are you Never, gonna drop I'm out of the race? I'm not going anywhere. You're not going I'm anywhere? I'm not going anywhere. That's right. I'm not dropping out. I'm gonna run to this moment. We just met our fundraising goal that we said we need to meet by the end of October to stay right. in the race, and so we're working hard on the race. Okay, okay. I'm gonna hold you to it. Either that or I'm gonna say that you were the curse if I do end up dropping out. <laughs> You're the curse. I'll take it. Um, <laughs> yeah. Welcome back to Next the show. Next time I'm gonna go Colbert or right. something else. <laughs> the, uh, the race has become um, an, an, an interesting contest, to say the least. You know, you have more Democrats running than ever before. You have a field that likes each other, but then there are a few fractions within the party that have started to show. You know, it's, there's the old versus the young. There's the ultra-progressive versus the more moderate. You have, in many ways, seemed to be aligned with many of the policies in and around Elizabeth Warren. She said she's loved your policies. You've said you've loved her policies. What do you think it is about the two of you that has stirred up this, this romance in and around policy? <laughs> it's a policy romance. That's what it is. Yeah, she's got a great team over there, and she's fantastic. Yeah, I mean, I think she's done a very impressive job on the campaign trail. I mean, if you look at where she was earlier in the year, and you look at where she is now, in many ways, the front runner. I've told her, you know, you're doing a, I think she, right now she's doing a fantastic job mm -hmm. of fusing 
her biography. People need to know who you are and why you're running with her policies. Right. And I've told her that. I mean, she's doing a great job at storytelling with a purpose. And, you know, uh, so kudos to her for what she's up to. Many people have said that is what you have in many ways, is you have a story and a purpose as well. You know, um, what's, what's difficult in this race is many of the candidates have said it feels a little bit like chicken and the egg in that if you have low polling numbers, the media doesn't give you the coverage. Because you don't have media coverage, your polling numbers can't go up. So how are you trying to get out to voters to say to them, hey, I am a viable choice for you? Yeah, well, I mean, also, you had several of these folks from D.C. that started off by transferring millions of dollars into their presidential campaign bank account, right? Right. And also, you notice that a lot of the media focus on people who are in power in D.C. That's the way it works. It revolves mm-hmm. around D.C., and so there's a gravitation toward that. I think you start off with an advantage. Even though I have some of the most relevant experience in this race, I was a big city mayor and a cabinet secretary. I have executive experience. I was starting from scratch. You know, I hadn't been, obviously hadn't run for president before, right. hadn't run for governor or senator. But since then, it's been a process basically of catching up. And I hope folks have been noticing that our campaign has been very different from most of the other campaigns. In right? what ways? Uh, I've been bold. I've been fearless. I wasn't afraid to tackle the issue of immigration in April before anybody else was talking about that. You had a lot of people backtracking, being afraid of taking on Trump on immigration. Right, right, right. I knew that a lot of people would think, hey, you know, if you were releasing the immigration plan, people are going to think you're the brown guy doing brown things. But uh-huh. I said, no, I mean, this guy thinks that he's going to win on this issue. And the way to face a bully is not to back up, but to actually present a strong, compelling vision of your own for the future. That's what I did on police reform. <laughs> you know? well, before, before you move on, though, that, that is an interesting point that you bring up, because w- what you said at the debates became a talking point that has followed the Democrats now. And that was, you said, you want to decriminalize illegal border crossings. Now, It is a very confusing term because some people think that means crossing the border into America illegally means you could just come into America. But that's not what it is. So what does it mean for those who don't understand the term? What it means is we would go back to the way that we used to treat somebody crossing the border without permission, which is that it would be a civil offense, so there would still be accountability, Uh but we would remove this misdemeanor that Trump has weaponized to separate migrant parents, incarcerate them, separate them from their children. So, you know, this law that he's using to do this, that he's weaponizing, Section 1325 of the Immigration Nationality Act, it was in effect from like 1929 to just after uh, uh, 9-11, but it wasn't enforced by Republicans, by Democrats, and then after 9-11, and especially with Trump, it got weaponized. We don't need it. We can still have border security, but treat people with common sense and compassion instead of this damn cruelty that this guy or a future administration might want to use. Has it been a bit frustrating for you? Has it been a bit frustrating for you at times um, being asked questions about Hispanic voters where people oftentimes automatically assume that Hispanic means illegal immigrant or undocumented worker? Or it, it seems like there is, this, there is this, you know, implied notion in America. As soon as people say the Hispanic votes and then people go like, oh, that means undocumented or that means people who are DACA dreamers, et cetera. Has it been hard to explain to people that it's not a homogenous group? I mean, you know, there's more than enough, uh, I think you know, bullshit to go around when it comes to this. They they talk about, you know, you're right. There's a one-dimensional view of a lot of the Latino community. Yes. And a lot of people, when they think of the Latino community, they think that you just got here five minutes ago. Right. My grandmother that I grew up with got here in 1922. Also, when people think about or talk about the working class, they always say the white working class. Right. What about the black working class, the Latino working class, the native working class, the Asian American working class? You know, by implication, 
by implication, there's this sense that if we're talking about people who have to work for a living or working for a living, that it does, you know, it only includes right, the white right, working right. class. And so there's, you know, more than enough in our political talk that points people in bad directions and making assumptions. What I've tried to do is just bust through all of that. Do you, you know, think, not do be you afraid think, to take all that on. Do you think that some of the front runners in this race and some of your peers have made the mistake of focusing only on those voters? Because people speak about them, you know, they'll go like in Pennsylvania, you know, they'll go like in Wisconsin, we, we've got the white working class voter, we have to win back. And some say that there is a risk of alienating black and Latino working class voters who go, well, what about me? Do you think the party has maybe gone too far in one direction? No, I mean, I think we have to do both of those things, right. right? And that's what I've been trying to do. I mean, I think that my campaign has spoken to issues of economic opportunity and also racial and social justice and fused those better than any other campaign, mm -hmm. right? Because we do have to go into Michigan, Wisconsin, Pennsylvania, but remember, those are states that have rural components that are mostly white. They also have Detroit and Milwaukee and Philadelphia that are urban and very diverse. Right. So we have to be able to do both of those things, not even to talk about places like Florida that are 29 electoral votes, that if we won there, it would give us some room or you know, win the election in and of itself, or my home state of Texas that is very urban and also very rural. Uh, so we need a, can a candidate that can do both of those things, and I know that I can do both of those things. Energize that Obama coalition that he put together in 2008, mm -hmm. you know, supercharge that, bring people off the sidelines and into the voting booths. But I think that you're gonna have to break through by being bold and fearless, and that's what I've tried to do. Um, <laughs> Mayor. Mayor Pete Buttigieg made some news when he said he thinks that the Democratic race is now a two-horse race. He said it's between him and Elizabeth Warren. Many were like, wow, you've just written off Biden, you've written off everybody else. And he said, this is what I'm doing. Was it strange for you uh, having Buttigieg say that, especially considering that you are a mayor of a much bigger town? And you guys had a little, little spat back and forth where he said, you said he doesn't have a great relationship with black voters. You know, you, you pointed to the incidents that have occurred in South Bend. He then said to you, well, why not come out to my neck of the woods and I'll show you around? Have you taken him up on that? Uh, no, and well, and uh, what, do you, what do you think you have th that, is, that differs to him with regards to the experience of being a mayor? Uh, well, I actually have a good track record with black voters and were folks that I worked with in San Antonio, uh, which I think is different. And my point was that we're gonna need a nominee that can resonate in the African-American community. Black women have been those powering our victories everywhere from Alabama to, you know, the 2018 wins. And so what I said was that it's risky to have a candidate at the top of the ticket that cannot speak to, in a convincing way, those different communities. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I think the track record is there on his end. Uh, in San Antonio, my experience was the exact opposite of that. In fact, I got appointed to the Obama administration as housing secretary largely because of the work that we did on the east side of San Antonio, which traditionally was the African-American part of town. Right. Uh, and, you know, we got a Promise neighborhood grant. We got a Choice neighborhood grant. We made other investments right away to try and lift up the quality of life and economic opportunity for the people that live there. And so I just think the track records are different. Uh, you know, I, I'm sure that there's some things that he's done that are good things, and I have a lot of respect for Mayor Buttigieg, but I do think that our experience level is different. You know, I don't need to go see uh, South Bend. I saw a hundred different cities when I was HUD secretary, right. and I, I was mayor of a, a city that's 14 times larger than South Bend. In fact, we could almost fit, we could almost fit South Bend in our Alamo Dome in San Antonio. <laughs> right? so, you know. Let me 
ask you this. Let me ask you this. You, 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 have, you have stood out in the field for, for, for many reasons, but one in particular, and that has been that you haven't been afraid to come at your Democratic rivals in this race in a friendly way, but you haven't been afraid. You know, with Buttigieg, you've been, not been afraid to say, hey, you don't have a good track record with black voters and you don't have a good relationship with them. The polls are showing that. Um, you took a bit of heat uh, f- during the debates for saying to Joe Biden that he was forgetting what he had just said, and he had. And people said no. They were like, oh, Julian, we felt like that was disrespectful. You know that people are saying Biden's mind is slipping. Why would you say on the debate stage that he's just forgot something that he clearly forgot that he said? <laughs> do, do, you, do you think that, like, there's a, there's a, a respect or a, a certain level of, like, treading lightly that needs to be applied in the Democratic race? Or is there a reason you've gone, no, I'm just going to tell it like it is? Well, I mean, I've tried to tell it like it is. You know, with Biden... Uh... That was a reaction in that moment. I was not trying to suggest what the mainstream media ran away with. It was that he had said uh, buy-in, and then he said he didn't say buy-in. And I was just saying, did you forget that you said buy-in? And so it was a reaction to that. But yeah, I mean, look, uh, I grew up with a mom that was a Chicana activist, a Mexican-American civil rights activist. And for a long time, you know, I thought that there was no point in getting involved in politics because my mother had kind of come from an outsider's perspective. And I wondered whether this democratic process ever produced anything for people. And so when I run for office, I'm not just running to run. If sometimes it seems, you know, sharp or pointed, it's because I actually want to make a difference for people. I wanted to go somewhere. And every time I've had the chance to serve, I actually have a track record of getting things done, things that I can point to that lift people up. And so, um, you know, yeah, I mean, I want to tell it like it is. I want to tell the truth. Uh, I'm very respectful to people, but I'm not afraid to take people on either. And you know what? I think that in the fall of 2020, when the Democratic nominee is standing up there on the debate stage with Donald Trump, you better damn well make sure that you're sending somebody that can fight for themselves and fight for you up against Donald Trump because you know that he's not going to play nice. Yeah, he's going to play nice. Makes a lot of sense. Thank you so much for joining us on the show. Thank you. Great to have you back here again. The Daily Show with Trevor Noah, Ears Edition. Watch The Daily Show weeknights at 11, 10 Central on Comedy Central and the Comedy Central app. Watch full episodes and videos at thedailyshow.com. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And subscribe to The Daily Show on YouTube for exclusive content and more. This has been a Comedy Central podcast. 